Okay, now, now we want to get into our Bibles, uh, and we'll be in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 10, as we continue working our way through this book on the topic, uh, avoiding this trap of do-it-yourself spirituality. One of the things the Bible does a lot of is ask us to learn from the experiences of other people. So it will tell us the story of, of someone's life and, and how they encountered God and then how they responded to him. And scripture invites us to learn from their experiences. Sometimes that lesson is positive. And it will say, okay, here's what they did right. Uh, here's how they trusted God. And here's, here's the good things that resulted from that. And many times the example is negative. And it's like, well, okay, here's what they did. Uh, here's how they didn't trust God. And here's all the, the um, negative, the hardship, the, the bad things that resulted from that. And that's what we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, the Apostle Paul who wrote this is asking us to learn from someone's really bad example of how they did not trust God. So this is really what trusting God doesn't look like. And um, the outcome was terrible. And so if you want to avoid a similar terrible outcome in your life, then don't do what they did. But see, that's exactly what the first readers of this, the people that Paul first wrote to, that's exactly what they were in danger of doing. Um, the Corinthians were on the verge of making the same dreadful mistake that was made by the people God rescued from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites. Um, the Corinthians were on the verge of doing the, the very same thing that they did right after they came out of, of slavery in Egypt. And apparently, I'm prone, I'm vulnerable to make that same mistake. And so are you. Uh, it's not just a historical problem, it's a human problem. And that's why we need to read this. Now, personally, I don't really like learning from negative examples. I don't, I don't really like warnings. I'd much rather focus on the positive. But as a fallen, broken individual living in a fallen, broken world, I obviously need warnings. I need warnings to help me not believe false ideas. Those are rampant in our world. I need warnings not to believe those things. I need warnings not to make stupid choices that will end up hurting me and the people I love. Do you realize it is a sign of how much God loves us that he warns us with these kinds of negative examples and, in, in, and warns us not to follow 
their example. The example of people who turn away from him. So I would encourage you as we read this to be thinking, it's because God loves me. And it's because God wants me to be happy forever that he's telling me this. Okay, so let's read. We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 10. Should have a note sheet in your folder with the, the passage on it. This is from the New International Version. Verse 1, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, and he's talking about spiritual ancestors, okay, the Israelites in particular, they were all under the cloud, I'll explain that in a second, and that they all passed through the sea. Uh, Many have heard of the story of the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. They were all baptized. They were all immersed into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. And by spiritual food, it doesn't mean food that's not real. It means food that God supernaturally provided. And they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, the point to get here is that these people that God rescued out of Egypt were incredibly blessed. Incredibly blessed. They repeatedly saw God do utterly amazing things. So uh, God, God divided the Red Sea so that they could escape from the Egyptian army on dry land. And God led them through the wilderness with this pillar this column of cloud. It looked like cloud in the daylight, and at night it looked like a pillar of fire. God led them. God went before them. So they saw God do miraculous things. They experienced God providing for their every need as they traveled across the wilderness to the land that God had promised to give them. They all did. I don't know if you noticed the emphasis in what we just read on that little three-letter word, all. All the Israelites who came out of Egypt experienced these things. They all saw God's power to bring them through the sea. They all saw the cloud manifesting his presence. They all ate the food. They all drank the, the water that he provided for them in the desert. And then you come to verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now that ought to get our attention. It's meant to get our attention. That's staggering. All of them experienced God's goodness in amazing ways, and yet most of them never made it. To the promised land. Most of them never reached the goal. The adults who left Egypt. Their children did, but the adults out of the hundreds of thousands of adults who left Egypt and experienced all of these things, do you know how many made it to the goal? Two. Caleb and Joshua. That's it. 
Most of them drop dead in the desert. Why? Why? Why didn't, why wasn't God pleased with most of them? Well, the answer's here, but it's crystallized in a simple statement in in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 19. It's talking about these very same people, and it states this. So we see that they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. Unbelief. In other words, distrust. They refused to trust God in spite of all he had done for them. They got to the edge of the promised land, they said, no. No, we don't trust you, God. And I, you know, so I'm thinking, and maybe you're thinking, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding. After what they saw, after what they experienced, I mean, I'm inclined to think that if I saw the things they saw, man, it would be so easy to trust God. You know, if every day when I'm driving down the road, there's a pillar of cloud, God's presence leading the way. And, you know, if the interstate bridge is up, God parts the Columbia River so I can drive across. I think that would be easy. It would be so much easier to trust God if I had the kind of experiences that those people had. And then I get down to verse 11, and it's like a... Slap in the face, and it says, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. There's so much in that phrase. The culmination of all God's promises in the person of Jesus. Now think about it. That verse only makes sense if I'm really not that different from those people. This verse only makes sense if I'm just as capable of blowing it as they were. If I'm just, it's just as possible for me to be as stubborn and self-willed and unbelieving as they were in spite of how many miracles I see, in spite of all God's goodness that I experience. (laughs) And if I'm honest with myself, I know that's true. I know that's true. So what happened to these people? It wasn't just their problem. It's, It's meant to be a lesson for us. We're supposed to learn from their mistake because if we don't learn from their mistake, if we do what they did, we will likewise experience God's judgment. That's what it's meaning. That's what it's saying. So what was their mistake? They didn't trust God. Why not? Verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from, here it is, setting our hearts on evil things as they did. They didn't trust God because they set their hearts on evil things. Well, what does that mean? 
Here's how I'll say it. Setting our hearts on evil things means giving first place in your heart to something other than God. Giving first place in your heart to something other than God. In other words, it means this. It means looking to something or someone other than God to give you that deepest soul satisfaction that you crave. To give you that sense of contentment, that deep sense of worth that, that's built into you. Looking to something or someone other than God to provide that for you. Tim Keller puts it like this. Listen to this quote. You can believe in God and yet still trust something else for your real significance and happiness. And that, therefore, is your real God. Let me say that again. You can believe in God and yet still trust something else for your real significance and happiness, which is, therefore, your real God. That comes from Keller's book titled Counterfeit Gods, and that is exactly the problem. Setting your heart on an evil thing means setting your heart on a counterfeit God, a substitute, a fake, a phony, instead of the real thing. Now, here's what's really unexpected. Many times, that substitute that we're, we're tempted to trust in, that we're trusting in, it's not a bad thing in and of itself. That's what you might think when you read, you know, don't set your heart on evil things. We assume it's talking about something that's inherently bad. And it might be sometimes, but most of the time it isn't. That's not it at all. Most of the time it's not what, what makes a thing an evil thing is not that it's inherently bad, but that we're elevating it to a place in our hearts that it was never meant to occupy, the place where God alone should be. We take a good thing and we make it the ultimate thing. We take a creature, a creation, and we treat it like the creator in the sense that we look to that thing to give us that sense of worth and fulfillment and joy and meaning. So, just for example, if you have a family, that's a good thing. That is a wonderful gift from God. But if your family becomes more important to you than God... If you look, if, if you treat your family as the thing that gives your life meaning, that gives your life significance, that gives your life worth, all those things that ultimately only God can give you, then you've taken that good thing and you've made it your ultimate thing. You've given it the place in your heart that only God can fill. And that's an evil thing to do. And it won't be good for you or your family. 
And, and see, we can do that with lots of good things. We can do that all kinds of good things. You know, like, like having the approval of other people. Most of us like that. It's a good thing. Or achieving success in work or whatever you're doing. Or attaining wealth. Or having an attractive appearance. Those aren't bad things. Those are good things. But they're not ultimate things. They're not God. And if you treat them as God in your life, that is, if you set your heart on those things instead of on God, then they become an evil thing in your life. So as we read about the evil things that the Israelites set their hearts on, Okay, here's what, here's what not to do, because that, that's what we're going to read here in 1 Corinthians 10 as we go on. Don't do this. Don't, don't look, about, look at the things that the Israelites set their hearts on and go, well, phew, that was stupid. How dumb is that? I, I would never, ever do that. No, no th- th- we're not going to learn anything if we do that. So what we want to do is we want to say, okay, and maybe I wouldn't do that. But what does that teach me about my heart and the things that I'm inclined to trust in instead of God? So that's what we want to do, is we look at some potential rivals for first place in our hearts. Let's think about, do I do that? Do I do something similar to that? Is that a rival that I have to deal with? So here's the first one. First rival for first place is a God you can manage. A God you can manage. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So when it says, as it is written, that's always a reference to a quotation from the Old Testament. So this comes from Exodus chapter 32, and this is talking about the time. Okay, so uh, God used Moses to bring the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they crossed through the wilderness, uh, and they got to this place called Mount Sinai, and Moses alone went up on the mountain to receive God's instruction for the people. He's up there like 40 days, and the people get tired of waiting. They're just They're tired of this. And so they make an idol, uh, a golden calf, and they proceed to engage in a pagan worship festival celebrating this idol, doing the exact same kind of worship practiced by the nations surrounding them, which is exactly what they were not supposed to do. Because God's intent for them was to be on display to the whole world to show them who God is and how he is to be worshipped, not like the gods of the nations, but that's what they did. They made this idol and they worshipped. You say, well, why would anybody do that? Well, you have to start with the fact that we all worship something. We all do. In other words, uh, there is something in your life, even the most skeptical atheist on the planet does this. Everybody looks to something 
to give their life ultimate meaning and worth and value. Everybody does that. We all worship. We were made to. You can't help it. Okay, but why an idol? I mean, come on. A golden statue? It's ridiculous. Well, the thing that's attractive about some false gods is that they're manageable. You can bring them out when you want them, and you can, you know, have your fun, your worship, your whatever, you know, which in the case of the Israelites here, it was just an excuse to have a big drinking party and all that went along with it. And then when you're done, you put it away. Put your God away and he doesn't bother you. Nice and manageable. Now, we in our culture mostly don't worship literal idols, but we face the same root temptation. That is, preferring a God of human imagination. A God that we can manage. A God who's maybe more tolerant of sin than the real God. A God who maybe doesn't really want to get involved in every area of your life. Sort of a genie in the lamp, you know. When you want him, you rub the lamp, poof, there he is. Grants your wishes, and then he goes back in the bottle, and he doesn't bother you. He leaves you alone. How do you know, how do you know if you're worshiping the real God or a God of your own imagination that you've scaled down from the real thing? How do you know? The real God has made himself known. The real God has revealed himself in creation, he's revealed himself in his scripture, and he has revealed himself most perfectly in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. Okay, so the question is, do you worship the real Jesus, the Jesus Recorded for us by his eyewitnesses, what he said, what he did, what he himself said. Do you worship that Jesus or have you made up your own Jesus? I'll give you a question to ask or think about. If, if the Jesus you believe in never disagrees with anything you think and never challenges what you believe, if the real Jesus is completely comfortable with the culture as it is, is probably not the real Jesus. The real Jesus is incredibly loving, incredibly gracious, but he is nowhere near manageable. He came to manage our lives, not be managed by us. He's not manageable. A God you can manage is a rival. Second potential rival Fun and pleasure. Fun and pleasure. Verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. So this comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 25, where some Israelite men got invited by some women from a neighboring nation to join them in a pagan worship feast. And incidentally, this is exactly what the Corinthians were engaging in there in Corinth. It started back in chapter 8. Paul's talking about this. You know, they wanted to be able to go to the pagan temples and eat there because it's like a good restaurant. And it was socially acceptable. And the only problem is it involved 
worshiping false gods. That's exactly what this did. And this included these men engaging in sexual relations with these women. That was a common standard feature of Canaanite religion. That's what it was. Now, we've already talked a lot about sexual immorality earlier in the series. If you missed those messages and want to check them out, it's chapters 5 and 6 of the book. But just to summarize, God intends sex to be a wonderful, unifying experience between one man, one woman, within the guardrails of marriage as he defines it. Outside of those guardrails, it leads to heartache and very big problems. But it can be a lot of fun, and it can bring a lot of pleasure, and therefore it can become one of those things that we set our hearts on to make us happy and fulfilled instead of on Christ. We can make pleasure, we can make having fun We can make that our ultimate treasure instead of Christ. But it will fail us eventually. It will harm us eventually. Substitute gods always do. One more. Comfort and control. Comfort and control. And I'm going to combine verses 9 and 10 because they're closely related. Verse 9, we should not test Christ, we should not put him to the test, as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble, as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. So two things here, putting the Lord to the test and grumbling. And we actually have several examples of this in our Bibles, uh, God's people doing this. The snake incident comes from Numbers chapter 21. Uh, Take a look. But the people grew impatient. Yeesh. The people grew impatient on the way. Glad I'm never impatient. They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. And it was shortly after that that the venomous snakes came, and many of them died. Well, the miserable food was manna. I don't know if you've heard of manna. It was a kind of bread that God supernaturally provided for them in the wilderness while they were traveling, and it ended up being a 40-year journey. They got tired of it. They got tired of it. They got tired of traveling in the desert and all the hardships that came with that. Of course, they conveniently forgot that the reason they were in the desert The reason they were eating manna still every day for 40 years was because they had refused to go into the promised land when they got there because they didn't trust God to do what he said he'd do. He said, go in, I'll give you possession of the land. Go in, I'll fight your battles for you. And they said, I don't think so. That looks scary. That looks difficult. Don't think we can trust you, God. I got a better idea. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back and be slaves in Egypt because at least the food was tasty. In other words, God's way involved some short-term discomfort, so they didn't want it. They wanted to be comfortable. 
and they wanted to be in control so they could bring about that comfortable life they wanted. Well, let's think about that in our lives. Do you, do you ever find yourself thinking that you could come up with a better plan for your life than God's plan for your life? Does following Jesus ever feel uncomfortable? Do you think a more comfortable way would be a better way? See, this, this really is at the heart of this do-it-yourself spirituality. Thinking we know better. That's really at the core of it. Thinking we know better. Setting our hearts on something other than Jesus in his ways. Thinking that somehow the outcome he promises to bring about is not as good as the outcome we could bring about if we were in charge. Now, when you say it out loud like that, it, you realize how absolutely absurd that is. That's ridiculous. But it looks attractive sometimes. It really does. Let's face it. If these rivals for first place in our hearts, if they weren't appealing, we would not need this warning in our Bibles, would we? Nobody ever has to tell me, don't drink water out of the toilet bowl. You don't ever have to warn me about that. I guarantee you, there's zero appeal. There's no temptation there. But the only reason we're ever tempted to give first place in our hearts to something other than Christ is because it looks more satisfying. It's a lie, but it's an attractive lie. And here's the thing, it's not a matter, it's not a matter of if you're going to ever be tempted to set your heart on something other than Christ for your satisfaction and meaning and purpose. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and a matter of what. And if you don't think that's a possibility, if you don't think you would ever be tempted that way, check out verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So how do we not fall? How do we not fall? How do we not fall for this temptation, this attractive lie that somehow another thing will provide greater satisfaction, greater joy, greater meaning than Christ if we give that thing first place? How do we not fall for that? We've got to remember the truth of verse 13. Look at it. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Everybody deals with this kind of temptation. Nobody's immune. You're not special. The temptation is not unique. And God is faithful. God is faithful. Those are probably the three most important words in this whole passage. God is faithful. He will not... Let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Notice how it says that. It doesn't say he will not let you be tempted. He says he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And so anytime we tell ourselves, I, this is too, too much, I can't, I can't resist this, we're, we're lying to ourselves. 
But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God is faithful. What does that mean? It means he always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. And he has promised, he has promised to give you joy and a satisfaction that surpasses anything else you could know that will last forever. And there's no person, there is no situation, there is no hardship, there is no suffering that can keep him from giving you that if you will give first place in your heart to Christ. If you belong to him, he promises you that when you're tempted to give first place in your heart to someone other than Jesus, he will give you a way out. A way out, what is that? What might that look like? Well, at the very least, it looks like asking him for help because he says he will help. And so we cry out, say, Lord, help me because this, this, uh, this is tough. This is hard. Or call a friend who loves him. Call a friend who loves him and tell him you're struggling. We've got to learn how to do this. We've got to do this. That's why, that's why he's given us one another to help us with this stuff. And we're reluctant to do it. Because we're proud or something, or we think, well, I don't want him to think I'm, you know, struggling. I don't want him to think I'm ever tempted. We need that. We need the way out. Sometimes it's like that. Call a friend and say, hey, I am really struggling. I really need your prayer. I need you to talk to me. Talk me off this ledge because I'm on the verge of really blowing it. Get your face in the Bible. Get your face in the Bible and remind you of his promises, his superior promises, like Psalm 1611. Look at this. You, O Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. No one else can promise you that. No one else can give you that. A false God, a false God will eventually break your heart. Guaranteed. They will always fail you. They will always break your heart. They will all, and if you don't turn from it, eventually they will destroy you. The true God, the true God, will heal your heart completely eventually. And he will fill your heart with everlasting joy. No one else will do it. He alone is faithful. He alone is worthy. He alone will satisfy. Let's, uh, let's bow and pray. Lord, you've told us this, this temptation to trust in someone or something else is, is common. Common. So it's something everyone in this room, including me, is going to face. 
And Lord, I'm just going to ask that you will help each one of us see through the lie. See that whatever it is that's promising us greater satisfaction than you can give, greater joy than you can give, a greater future than you can bring about is lying to us. Help us see through the lie. Help us help each other see through the lie. And help us instead set our hearts on you. Please help us keep you first place in our hearts. Because you love us. You always want what's best for us. And Lord, when, when our life situation does not make sense to us and we can't figure out how you're working everything together for our good, help us trust you. Help us encourage one another. We pray in Jesus' name.